In Revelation 14, we've been speaking so far about how God has brought the full number of his people into salvation. He saves them as well. He takes all those who have taken on the mark of the beast and destroys them for eternity. That's where we've gone so far. And in thinking about that, I've had a couple weeks now to meditate. And the Lord took me to a passage in Nahum. Nahum is considered by some a minor prophet, but Nahum was given some prophecy concerning the wrath of God. He says this concerning God. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. In Nahum, as the Lord is always portrayed when he's in his wrath, he comes powerfully. He comes in great power. But there was one phrase in there that really caught my attention, and that is the words, slow to anger. In the scriptures, the Lord is given a description oftentimes of being slow to anger, but it's usually put alongside of, he is so gracious, he is great in mercy, he has loving kindness, and then you see, and he's slow to anger. And for us, we're like, Phew, he's slow to get angry. But in that passage, it's talking about his wrath, that he's bringing his judgment and that he's powerful and bring it. So why would it put in there slow to anger? And this is the reason why. Because in his caution to be angry, he is telling us that his justice is true. He didn't in a moment suddenly get mad and just freak out and then suddenly bring his wrath that is unrighteous, but rather when he brings his wrath, he is doing so because his judgment is perfect. He sees everything how it really is. And so as we go to the book of Revelation and we see these things, how he's bringing to himself the people that he's redeemed, but he's also bringing wrath upon his enemies. It's not as if he's doing something that's unjust. He's been slow to bring his anger. He's been cautious to bring his wrath upon those whom he has or uh, seen to be his enemies. And so again, we come and he's going to give us a description, some pictures of his wrath. And this isn't being done just because he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It's being done because in his justice, he's bringing about things correctly to its end. And so we see in Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, John having his vision says this. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So John looks, he first sees uh, this one who looks like a son of man. Some have said that's probably Jesus. He's often referred to as the Son of Man, but we have to understand it doesn't absolutely mean it. that one is Jesus. Daniel in the book of Daniel is referred to as the Son of Man. There's also opportunities in the Scripture where angels are described as looking like a man. And so we don't know exactly whether that's Jesus. It may just be somebody wearing the team colors. It might be, it might not be. I don't personally know. But what I know is that that angel goes out with a sickle. Another angel comes and says to him, it's time to reap. Take out your sickle and reap. And so the first angel, the first, first one, uh, swung his sickle and reaped the earth entirely. He brought in the harvest. Now, back in that day, as a lot of this agricultural region, know, region knows, you wait for that harvest and you bring it in in full. 
you go get that which you've been growing in the field. And so a lot of times Jesus would give illustration of people being out in the field. Sometimes it would be them out and reaping the wheat. They'd go out and they'd take it all in. And so sometimes he gave parables concerning the end times, how he would go and he would reap in the harvest of wheat. But other times they would use not wheat, they would use the illustration of a vineyard. And then they would go and they would, they would reap the vineyard, use, use the sickle to get uh, that out of the vineyard. And concerning the end times, this isn't the first time it's been spoken of. In the book of Joel, he speaks of this exact same harvest concerning the vineyard. It says this, Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I'll sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And he says this, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. So what they would do in that culture is they would have a vineyard and they would like the farmers. And if you've got your little patch there at your house, you've been tending to it. You planted it. You're watering it. You're fertilizing it. And you're waiting for this harvest to come. Well, their vineyards would be ripe and ready. And so they'd go out and they would pull in the harvest and then they would take all those grapes and they didn't have fancy wine presses. They didn't have juicers that you could buy off the Internet. They didn't have a store where you could just go pour it out or have it in concentrate, they would bring all these grapes in and they would put it in what was called a wine press. And then when they need something to squish those things, they would call in all their helpers and get them to take off their shoes and they would start stomping on the grapes. They would tread out the wine press. And so because that's not a part of our culture, I kind of wanted to give an illustration out this morning. So I'm going to call up my little helper this morning. About to get crazy. This morning, this is going to be our wine press. This, as you can see, is a cluster of what? Grapes. Now, the scripture describes the human beings as being grapes. So I want you to imagine this as being a bunch of people. And uh, my assistant here, she's going to go ahead and take all the people... And get them in there as quickly as you can. And you can watch what she's doing while we keep going. Pretend that the family's just gone out. All the harvesters has just gone out. They've, they've come, they've brought all the clusters in, and now all the grapes are going in to the wine press. And so as it comes, they together are taking it, and they're pulling them all out. They're getting them all into the wine press because they know... They have the harvest. All right. Got grapes going everywhere. Sorry, cleaning ladies, if this week you're vacuuming and you find some grapes. All right. So we got those grapes, and then they would come in. Go ahead. All right, just keep going. Just keep going. Stomp away. And they would stomp and they would stomp and they would stomp and they would keep going because within the pulp, they would just keep keep pulling out that juice. 
and they would just keep stomping, and this is the only way they had to do it. Now, I did wash her feet this morning, so they're good, but she, she's just going to keep stomping, and I want us to go back to Revelation. She's gonna keep, I told her she's going to have to do it for a while. She said, Dad, I might smile while I do it. I said, that's fine. You smile. You be the best wine presser you can be. You stomp those grapes out. But if you go back to verse 17, consider that picture as it goes on, and it almost gives us another snapshot of that happening. In verse 17, it says, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. And the angel who has authority, uh, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. For its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So again, it gives us this picture. This one who is commanded to, to reap the harvest swings the sickle and all the harvest comes in. There are not some grapes left out there. It says that they're all taken in, and it was put in the, the great wine press of what? Did you notice what it was? The great wine press of God's wrath. His wrath, that his judgment and punishment was coming upon the people who had not surrendered their lives unto God's grace. That they would be taken. And, and when you think about what God has done in all creation, when he spun up this universe, it wasn't just so that he could look back and say, Man, I'm awesome. Look at the artwork I can do. He did all these things so that through all that artwork, through the constellations, through the harvest, through the kids, that we'd be seeing him. And so as we go forward, we have stars in the sky that act as a clock teaching us about God. As we go on, the other ways of life, he's using all creation to show us about God. And when he put grapes in the ground, he said, I'm going to use those grapes to illustrate blood. And I'm going to illustrate the harvest coming at the right time to illustrate my wrath. And I bet you will never eat a grape the same way again. Because God in his creation installed for us a mental picture That his wrath is coming. That he'll stomp it out and he'll stomp it thoroughly. Now, as she keeps going, how's it going in there? Keep stomping. Keep stomping. Keep smiling. When it talks about this, I want to go to another passage in Isaiah chapter 63, giving us more details concerning this end. Now, we didn't know whether it was Jesus or the angels there, but for certain, when it comes to God, bringing his wrath upon the people, it is for sure Jesus who brings the wrath. He brings it because in Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6 say this, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. That's God. He's mighty in righteousness, He's mighty to save. And it says, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress 
What's it say? Alone. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. The description from Isaiah says, there's no one else who comes and brings the wrath of God. It is Jesus Christ alone. And so we see in this passage as he comes and he treads out the winepress of God's wrath in chapter 14 of Revelation. That is Jesus doing it. Later on in chapter 19, it says he comes and he's the only one whose garments are drenched in blood. Why? Because he's the one who does it. And so we find this out about Jesus because what revelation is the great revelation of Jesus Christ. We find first that he's the savior, that he's saving a redeemed people to himself. Second, we find that he's the judge. He's the only one who can tell right from wrong and those who are his and those who are not. And finally, we know that he is not only the savior and not only is he the judge, but he is also the executioner. He is the one who brings justice and executes those who are his enemies. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Now she keeps going. You might wonder, well, okay, I've kind of understood that before. I understand Jesus is Savior, Judge, Executor. What's it mean for today? It means there's a lot of people on this earth and there may even be people in this room who if they are not with Christ, him as their savior, they will be judged and they will be executed. Just as this beautiful girl executes these grapes. Imagine Jesus coming upon those whom you might even love, but they are far from God. Maybe you are far from God. And not being in his grace, he has been slow to anger, but then in his justice, he will come and destroy you and he will stomp you out in his wrath. And in Isaiah, it said, your blood will be upon his garments. That he alone will do it, but that you will suffer under the wrath of God. What does that mean for us? It means we need to go take the good news. And if you don't already know the good news, my suggestion is today. Pray for the mercy and grace of God. Because here's what's awesome. Awesome. About the scripture. See, God had every right to take every human being from the beginning of time to the end of time to take all of us and to throw us into the wine press. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were all by nature objects of wrath. That means that from the time we were conceived, we were sinners and deserved that. But God, who is, yes, great in wrath, is also great in mercy. And from the beginning of Scripture, we find that God in His goodness and mercy struck out on a plan, and that plan was to rescue some out of the wine press. And how did He do that? He sent He sent himself. He became a grape. 
The scripture says, and as Ronnie so greatly preached last week, Jesus, fully God, became fully man. He took on flesh and blood just like a grape. And it says that Jesus lived. He had no sin in his life. He had never sinned. And so he didn't need to die for his own sin. But the scripture says that when he took that cross and went up on Calvary and was nailed in that place, his blood flowed out, his body being ripped apart, and then he suffered separation from his father. Cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The scripture says that in that moment, Isaiah chapter 53, that under the will of God, he was crushed. And the son of God suffered and bled out. The scripture says if we believe that he has died for us, that that blood that runs out off of him comes upon us and washes us clean. He died and was executed under the wrath of the Father so that we would not ultimately suffer the wrath of God. That is a good word, my friends. That we deserve wrath. But because God is a good God, just God, slow to anger, He said, I sent my Son in your place and I crushed Him by my will so that you could live. And so that's why this morning we left some on. These are the ones that have been saved. And they're delicious. They're good. But what of the others? Yeah, disgusting. I hear the words. I hear the the murmurs. As she has tread out the wine press for just a little while. Now, these aren't good wine grapes. This is a Merlot or a Cabernet Sauvignon. This is a Naomi Hassan vintage. (laughs) Vintage 2016. All right, that's a good portion of what we've got. As she tread out that wine press, we got this juice. Now, we didn't get the color. We didn't have the good wine grapes, but this was the blood of the grapes. Now, out of that cluster, we've got how much here? Maybe a half a cup? Half a cup? It says that when God fully tread out the wine press of his wrath, Do you remember how much it said? It said that the blood flowed. It was a way of saying it just gushed. There was so much wrath happening because there were so many enemies of God that it flowed for 160 stadia. Now, one stadia was about the height of the space needle, 607 feet. If you laid those down end to end, 1,600 of them, it comes to 187 miles. That's almost 200 miles worth. It could also be that the 1600 stadium means 40 times 40, just giving us another complete but large number. That's like saying, that's a bucket full. That is a lot and lot and lot of blood that the Lord, our God, has done. Thank you. If 
you have not called upon the grace of God to save you from your sin, having Jesus crushed in your place, you know where you end up? You end up here. Your blood running out. Suffering under the wrath of God. And it's not just a little bit. It gave us the indication in the scripture. It was a lot. It was a lot. And so by God's grace, we are saved from that. And we are saved, not to just escape wrath, but he saves us into relationship with him. He begins to change your life. He changes your thoughts. He changes the way in which you go about business on a daily basis. He goes about uh, telling you a different way to live so that you can live rightly. I want to share with you an indication as to how this plays out in real life. I want to go to Romans chapter 12 to end. Because if you're saying, that's great, but that's future. No, it means something for today. Remember, only he is savior. Only he is judge. Only he is executioner. This says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep for those who, uh, with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now this is the part that also plays in. Remember who's the judge and executioner? It says this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God saved us from his wrath. That means that we then don't get to turn around and bring wrath onto others. This says that because God has so changed our heart, we leave that to him. He then says, love them, pray for them, serve them, give them drink, give them food, give them love. Show them Jesus the same way Jesus showed his love to you. Some of you have enemies. We have a nation right now that has enemies. A whole world that has enemies. And right now everybody's trying to figure out how to make borders, how to control guns, how to, how to resist coups, how to play video games. Let's figure out how to be Jesus to the world in love. Let's say Jesus has so saved me even to our greatest enemy, whoever that is in your life, he wants to save them too. From salvation, we walk in Christ, knowing that we are free from wrath, that there are people in this world, people who we might not even get along with, that through us loving them and showing them Jesus, quite possibly they will escape the wrath of God too. They won't be in the great wine press. 
they might hear the good news from your lips, from your life, through your prayers, and come to know Jesus Christ and escape the great wrath of God. On that day, when the call goes out to reap the harvest, there will be no chance left for those who are not in Christ. He will surely take them, judge them, execute them. Let's pray for them. Let's go save them. Let's go tell them about Jesus before it's too late. This morning, if you don't know Jesus, then I just told you about Him. He loves you so much. He loves you so much, He was crushed in your place. He says if you believe on Him, He will forgive your sins. He will show you His grace and show you His mercy. And you'll be rescued from His wrath. And you will live in His kingdom forever in a place that is unimaginable in peace and joy and love and community. It's going to be nothing like the news we see today. It's going to be awesome. So come to faith. Believe on Jesus. And then go live your guts out for Him. Because He was crushed for you. Our Father, we come and we thank You for the ways in which all of creation have illustrated for us Your love, Your justice, Your wrath and Your rescue. We're thankful that you have given us the truth, not just in the book of Revelation, but throughout the scriptures concerning what you have done, what you're doing and what you will do. And so, Lord, we cast ourselves before your throne and we ask for your grace and for your mercy. We plead that you would save us and continue to protect us from evil and sin. And in response to our salvation, may we glorify and worship you not just by waiting, but by waiting and obeying. Would you help us to take the gospel to our neighbors? Would you help us to live the gospel before our co-workers? Would you help us to, to trust you in the days that are ahead as the whole world is shaken and endures labor pains before you return? We pray that you continue, Lord, to keep our eyes on you. Lord, I pray right now, if there's anyone who is confronted with your gospel today, it is a hard, hard thing to give up ownership of ourselves. Lord, I pray that they would submit. They would call upon you for salvation and that today would be the first day of their eternal life. Jesus, we're so thankful that you were crushed in our place. And so forever we will sing your praises in Jesus' name.